Well, I do want to invite you and encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We are well into our study of the Gospel of John. Today we're wrapping up John chapter 4. And I'm going to spare you a long introduction this morning. We're actually going to jump right into it. We're looking at John chapter 4 and we're looking at verses 46 to 54. Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And it says this to us. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You can be seated. Well, I think it's true of all chapters in the Gospel of John and really of all chapters in the Bible, but John chapter 4 is a great chapter. Uh, We've already spent a couple weeks exploring the first part of John chapter 4. That's the story of the Samaritan woman. Uh, It's a much-loved story. It's a familiar story. This story at the end of John chapter chapter 4 is less well-known, but it is every bit as instructive. And my own heart was so encouraged just studying this passage and preparing this message. So my prayer is that uh, it will encourage you as well. And what I want to do as we make our way through it is just to make three observations from this passage. And the first one is that there is no single profile of those who are drawn to Jesus. So the passage begins like this in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official. So it begins by telling us that there was an official at Capernaum. The Greek word for official here is basilikos. It usually has reference to a royal official. Some of your translations may say that. And given the location, most interpreters think that this man was probably a courtier of Herod or something along those lines. In any case, I think it is worth noting this man's status or this man's position. John tells us that he was an official for a reason. I think one of the benefits of studying through the Bible or reading through the Bible and studying it through it in a systematic fashion as a church is that you start to see stories in their context. So just think about the last three stories that we've read in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to Nicodemus, a high-ranking religious official who came to Jesus at night. That story was then followed with the story of the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at a water well. He engages her in a conversation, and she was the polar opposite 
of Nicodemus. She was a woman. She had no position to speak of. She was an outcast of sorts. And then here at the end of chapter 4, we meet this royal official. And then if we were just to fast forward to chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, the next story that we're going to read about is about a lame beggar. So John is painting quite a portrait for us. And even if we were just to stick to the first three individuals, we can see the varied portrait of those who were drawn to Jesus. A high-ranking religious leader, a despised female outsider, and now a high-ranking secular leader, a government official. And this is what I mean by saying that there's no single portrait of those or profile of those who are drawn to Jesus. And this, in fact, has always been true. So we launched this church back in September of 2011, and we launched it with a study on the book of Philippians. But on that very first Sunday, on launch Sunday, I preached from Acts chapter 16, which tells the story of the beginning of the church in the city of Philippi. If those of you who are following along in the, in the Bible reading plan that, that I'm going through this year, a number of you are doing that, you will know that Acts chapter 16 is part of your reading for today. But for the rest of you, you might just want to take the time and read through it this week because it's such a fascinating story of how this church got its start. Acts chapter 16 tells the story of three startling conversions. The first story is about a wealthy businesswoman by the name of Lydia. She's converted to Christ. The next account is about a demon-possessed slave girl who made her owners a fortune by telling people's fortunes. And she followed Paul and Silas around as they were going about preaching. They finally got so annoyed with her that Paul cast the demon out of her. Paul and Silas were then thrown into prison, but miraculously they escape. And the jailer was so distraught because his prisoners had escaped that he was about to kill himself. But Paul walks in and stops him. And the jailer's question to Paul is, what must I do to be saved? So the church in Philippi started with a wealthy businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar prison guard. That's what I mean by saying that there's no single profile for those who are drawn to Jesus. They come from all walks of life. You know, the 1990s were kind of the heyday of the church growth movement. And one of the books I remember reading in the midst of all that was a book entitled Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary. And the book was trying to help pastors and others understand how to build their churches into the kinds of places that those from outside the church would feel comfortable attending. So it had chapters on things like creativity, on doing things with excellence, making sure the sermon was something that people could relate to. If you wanted your church to grow, you needed to have great music great kids and youth programs, and the pastor needed to preach relevant, practical messages. I think the heart behind the book was good, but it didn't seem to grasp the fact that there's not really a single profile for all the diverse people who have an interest in Jesus, who are drawn to him. The book was great for building a mega church in a heavily populated suburban area filled with baby boomers. But it didn't offer much more than just how to make the church more entertaining. 
few years later, another book came out called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched. Now, as an aside, I don't really like that word unchurched. I don't think the goal is to church people, whatever that means. But this book, what this book found out through a massive study was that all of the assumptions about why people didn't come to church were all wrong. And they did this massive study of people who had actually come to faith in churches. And they asked all sorts of questions about what it was that drew them to the particular church they got saved in. The two most important factors that they discovered that drew these unbelievers to the church were number one, the preaching, and number two, the doctrine or the beliefs of the church. Now, that's not an excuse for doing a lousy job with stuff, but I think it's something really important for us to understand. Some of you will know that comedian Norm MacDonald passed away in 2021. If you don't know his name, Norm MacDonald was a comedian, maybe best known for a successful stint on Saturday Night Live. At times, Norm MacDonald described himself as a person of faith, as a Christian at times. He thought a lot about death. He said he was on a constant quest to discover the truth. And he was interviewed on a podcast not long before his passing. And something he said in the context of that interview was both insightful and sad. He said this. He said, I have a rabbi who I talk to a lot. He's a real scholar. My pastor doesn't know anything. I mean anything. He's just a pleasant guy. If you ask him a direct question, he'll go, what? Didn't you hear my sermon? And then he said, but his sermons are always like how to be a nice fella or some nonsense. Now, I don't know who his pastor was. I don't know what church he was part of. But do you know how much of an indictment on the church that is? I mean, here's someone who is successful and famous, but with a hunger to know the truth. And the best he got from the church was how to be a nice guy. And there are lots of people like that. People who are drawn to Jesus. They want to know. People from all walks of life. And we need to make sure that what we tell them is more than just how to be a nice fella or how to be a nice lady. So there's more to that truth, Howard. So let me give you the second half. There is no single profile for those who are drawn to Jesus except a recognition of their own desperate need. So this royal official had a desperate need. It says, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. I mean, that's pretty relatable if you have kids. When someone close to you is suffering, it ratchets up the desperation that you feel. And verse 47 gives us a little bit more information. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had come down or had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus was at Cana. This man was in Capernaum. Those two towns were about 15 miles apart. Now, remember, they didn't have cars or Uber. 
So traveling 15 miles would have probably meant walking and then convincing Jesus to walk those 15 miles back with you. But a 30-mile round trip doesn't seem like much when your son is at the point of death, when you are desperate. Now, I've never experienced anything quite like that. When our son Ben was younger, he had lots of issues with asthma. We had a nebulizer at home. There were seasons where it seemed like that thing was always running. He was always hooked up to it. Ben had bouts with pneumonia, and it would always seem to come at the worst possible time, like in the middle of a Saturday night when I was scheduled to preach or teach on Sunday morning. But it didn't matter. Because when it's your kid, you will drop whatever you are doing drive them to the hospital, or do whatever it takes because you are desperate for help. That's this man times 10. You can hear the desperation in his voice. After he makes his initial request to Jesus, Jesus rebuffs him. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. We're going to unpack that in a couple minutes. But then in verse 49, it says, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. See, at this point, he's not asking. He's begging, right? Every one of us would do exactly the same thing. The thing that drew this royal official to Jesus was his desperation. Read through the Gospels, and you will find that his story is not unique. You can see it clearly in a passage like the one we find in Matthew chapter 9, where it says this, While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. You see the desperation for both of them? The synagogue ruler was desperate because his daughter had just died. The woman was desperate because she's had this issue of blood for 12 years. And both of them broke all sorts of social conventions to get to Jesus. And Jesus ministered to both of them. Again, these stories of people who are desperate are all over the Gospels. We can think about the four friends whose, or the four men whose friend was paralyzed. You remember the story. There's such a large crowd gathered around Jesus as he is teaching in a house. They couldn't get to him, so they climbed on the roof, took the tiles off the roof, and lowered their friend down through the roof, right in the middle of Jesus' sermon. I mean, that's desperation. We could think of Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector who knew he was too short for Jesus to see him as Jesus was passing by. So he climbed into a a fig tree. He's desperate. We could think of Bartimaeus, a blind man who called out in a loud voice as Jesus passed by, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were standing close by told him to be quiet. Shush. Mark tells us that only made him call out all the more and more loudly. This is what you do when you're desperate. I've shared this with you before, but one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 107. Uh, listen to 
a few of the stanzas from that song. It says, Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Later in the psalm, it says, Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains. Because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. And then verses 23 to 28 say, Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths in their their peril. Their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. And what you see in that psalm is that while the people might have ended up in their distress for different reasons, might have taken different routes to get there, the answer to their distress came when they called out to the Lord. That's what we see with this official. He's so desperate, he has nowhere else to go, so he's drawn to Jesus. Maybe Jesus can heal him. So what about you? Have you, re- have you recognized your own desperate need for Jesus? Now maybe it's not a sick child. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a relational breakdown. Maybe it's mounting debt. or Some sort of overwhelming circumstances. Or maybe it's that you're filled with fear. Or filled with anger or filled with lust, or anxiety. Those things ought to drive us to call out to the Lord in our distress. We ought to be aware of our desperate need for Jesus. There's no single profile of those who are drawn to Jesus except that recognition of their own desperate need. Second thing we see here, is that there is a difference between sign-seeking faith and genuine faith. You know, verse 48 is a bit shocking, isn't it? So this man in verse 47 comes down to Jesus, asks him to heal his son, for he's at the point of death in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The man travels a great distance. He finds Jesus, asks him to heal his son, and Jesus responds by saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What on earth is going on here? I think there's a couple things to note. One thing that's not obvious in our translations is the fact that the you is plural in this verse. So when Jesus says to the man, unless you see signs, 
You will not believe. That's a plural you. So the man says to Jesus directly, can you come with me and heal my son? And Jesus then answers the crowd in a sense. Unless you people, unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And part of what I think is going on in Jesus' answer to this man is that there were a number of people who were drawn to Jesus on the basis of his miracles. I mentioned it earlier, but this official may have been an official of Herod. And Herod heard about Jesus' miracles too. In Luke chapter 23, we read this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him from what he had heard about him. He hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. So Herod was interested in seeing Jesus because he wanted to see him do some kind of sign. But Jesus wasn't a trained seal. He wasn't interested in doing miracles as a way of impressing people. Something similar to this happens a few times in John's gospel. Back in chapter 2, when Jesus did his first sign, when he changed the water to wine at Cana in Galilee, his fame began to spread. And the end of John chapter 2 reads like this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. And then it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. See, lots of people were impressed with Jesus' miracles. But Jesus wasn't necessarily impressed with their faith. Same thing's going to happen in John chapter 6. Jesus is going to miraculously feed 5,000 people. But there's a kind of faith that is spurious. And I think part of what Jesus is doing is putting this man's faith to the test. This is not the only time we see something like this. There's a rather shocking story in Matthew chapter 15 where it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So what was Jesus doing here? I mean, was he being cold and callous to this woman whose daughter was suffering terribly? Well, the tone is sometimes hard to decipher when you read accounts like this and you don't actually hear the words being said. But I think he's testing the the nature of her faith in the same way I think he was testing the nature of this royal official. Look, if you're just here for signs you're going to be disappointed. There's a difference between sign-seeking faith and genuine faith. A sign-seeking faith demands that God act right away in order to prove himself. A couple months ago at Andy's urging, I listened to a podcast called Heavyweight. 
The episode I listened to featured John Green. John Green is a popular author, uh, most famous for his young adult novel, The Fault in Our Stars. But before he was an author, John Green was training to go into the ministry. And he had an experience more than 20 years ago that not only made him change his mind about the ministry, but, but one that also shattered his faith. The summer before he was to start seminary, he took a job as a hospital chaplain, really like the first real job he ever had. This goes back more than 20 years, but during his first week on the job, a young burn victim was brought into emergency. He was about three years old. The father had been burning some debris in the yard and the fire got out of control. The boy was engulfed in flames. The boy, whose name was Nick, was in such a bad condition, his burns were so severe that the attending physician had to step out of the room to throw up in a nearby garbage can. That night, John Green sat with the boy's parents trying to offer some kind of words of comfort, but in the midst of doing that, he realized he didn't want to go into ministry. He didn't even believe in God anymore. When he came into the hospital for his next shift, the boy wasn't there. He assumed he must have died. Quit his job that very week, took an entirely different direction in life. So that happened in 2001. But though he assumed the boy had died, he couldn't quite shake the experience. And so over the years, he had this curiosity about whatever happened to that boy. What happened to Nick? He wanted to know, but he also didn't want to know. And so he would sometimes get as far as typing the boy's name into the search bar, but he couldn't quite bring himself to hit enter. It took him like 20 years to do it. And one day he finally did hit enter, and much to his surprise, he discovered that Nick not only survived, he was now a graduate student. His life was forever altered by that fire. He underwent multiple surgeries, multiple stints in the hospital because of infections. He's truly scarred for life. And the episode of the podcast that I listened to was the first meeting between the two of them since that night in the hospital. John Green, who had once interviewed Obama, said this was the most nervous he had ever been before an interview. And the most fascinating moment of the podcast came when John Green asked this now young man what he thinks when he looks back on that event. And his answer was shocking. He said, I would definitely like to have not been burned and to not deal with the daily things that come with that. But it brought my family to Christ and that would not have happened otherwise. See, after that accident, people in the community befriended Nick's family, invited him to church, and it was there that they discovered the grace that is available in Jesus. Nick is not only a graduate student in business, he's also enrolled in a Bible college. He has a robust faith in Jesus. So how is it that the same set of circumstances can produce two drastically different results? And the answer is that one understanding of faith is shallow. God, you better do what I'm asking right now or I will stop believing in you. And the other one is persistent, tenacious even. I mean, this, that, that's this man. Jesus says, look, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But he's not shaken so easily. He says, Lord, please. My son's about to die. And then we read this in verse 50. 
Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. See, that's what genuine faith looks like. We take Jesus at his word. There's a third thing we discover here. And that is that Jesus has authority and gives life. You know, anytime we look at a miracle story, I always wrestle with how much to say about miracles in general. And the reason I say that is because I know some of you might have defeater beliefs when it comes to miracles. Right? The moment you hear a miracle story, you're like, come on, I believe in science. You expect me to believe that? Or maybe you just have the question, look, if Jesus did all these miracles, why don't we see miracles like this today? I mean, how come pastors don't just go around to the children's hospital and heal all the sick kids? Well, I think it's helpful to understand the purpose of Jesus' miracles in general and in regards to this specific miracle. I read through Gary Inrig's book on miracles this week. thought he had a helpful five-fold summary of the purpose of Jesus' miracles. He said that miracles are firstly glimpses of his glory and, and revelations of his person. That's what we saw back with the first miracle or first sign that Jesus did in John chapter 2, where it says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory And his disciples believed in him, right? Part of the purpose of miracles was for Jesus to reveal his glory. Second purpose of them was that miracles authenticate his authority and message. So in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he said this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So part of the purpose of the miracles was to establish the authority of Jesus. He's accredited by those signs and wonders. Third thing we can say about Jesus' miracles is that they were foretastes of what will happen when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So the miracles then are like snapshots. They're pictures of what heaven will be like When everyone is made whole, there's no sickness, there's no death. And then Jesus' miracles were also visible expressions of his power and compassion. And then finally, we should understand that Jesus' miracles were parables of salvation. That is to say, the blind receive sight, the grieving find peace, the enslaved are set free, the guilty find forgiveness, and the dead are raised to life. That's true of those that Jesus touched and healed, but also true spiritually that he does these things. He sets the captives free. He gives people new life. But I want to kind of just key in on those last two in regards to this miracle. This miracle is a visible expression of Jesus' power and compassion. You know, part of what's interesting when you study Jesus' miracles is to note not just the types of miracles that Jesus did, but also the way or the methods that he used when he did miracles. So read through the Gospels and you will find that Jesus healed several blind people. But he seemed to do it differently every time. So when he healed Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 9, he just says a word and Bartimaeus can see instantly. But in Mark chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man, but he heals him in stages. First, he spits on the man's eyes. 
And then he says, what do you see? And the man says, well, I, you know, when I see people, they look like trees walking around. So then Jesus touches the man's eyes. And that story appears in the context of a discussion about what it's like to gain spiritual sight. And the point seems to be Jesus does it this way as an illustration that often spiritual sight comes in stages. And then in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. And maybe you remember that story. But when he heals this blind man, he spits on the ground first. He mixes up some mud and then he puts it on the man's eyes. And the context of that miracle is a Sabbath day. And when the Jews and the Pharisees look at it, all they can see is not that this man was healed from blindness, but that Jesus made mud, worked on the Sabbath. So there's a reason why Jesus does miracles the way that he does them. The methods Jesus used are often revealing. He can heal with just a word. But when he heals a leper, he actually touches him. Right? That's not an accident. So what do we see when we look at this miracle? Well, I think we see both Jesus' compassion and his power. We see his compassion in that when he hears this man's desperate plea, I mean, he heals him. He heals his son. His power or authority is seen in the fact that he heals him at a distance. The man's like, look, you've got to come with me back to Capernaum. And Jesus just says, go. Your son will live. See, that's the kind of authority Jesus has. But we also see that Jesus gives life. In fact, if this is in fact a parable of salvation, a picture of what salvation looks like, then the lesson of the parable is that Jesus gives life. That line, your son will live, is actually repeated three times. We see it twice in our translations. But even in verse 52, the word that's translated recovering is the same Greek word for live. So Jesus says your son will live. His servants tell him your son is living, and then he repeats the story and says, Jesus said, your son will live. See, Jesus is the one who gives life. Does this mean that every sick child will be made well if their parents just have enough faith? It's not what it means. But it is pointing forward to the fact that there will come a day when all those who became sick and died will be raised up. And you can also see the focus actually of this story is not just on what happens to the son, the physical healing that takes place, but the spiritual life that came to this man and not just to this man, but in fact to his entire household. Listen again to verse 53, or 52 and 53. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew. That was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. Right? This miracle produces not just physical life for this boy, but spiritual life for this man and his entire household. So the question is, how do we get this life that Jesus gives? And the answer is that just like this man, we put our faith in Jesus. We believe what he tells us and we go on our way. So let's pray that we have faith like this man. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that when we call out to you and cry out to you, you hear us. 
You have compassion for us. You have the power to do something for us. And Lord, many times we're not aware of how desperate our condition is, but we pray that we would call out to you, whatever our trouble is, whatever our distress is, that we would experience that very thing experienced by the psalmist, that call out to the Lord and you answered and delivered us from our distress and from our trouble. So God, may we be people who are utterly dependent on you and may we see your power at work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.